0: It's the 12th of November, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It is Friday, exactly one week after the ACR meeting began with its opening ceremonies, and we're just recovering a lot of content, thousands and thousands of abstracts presented, um, you know, nonstop uh, meeting coverage, starting at early, early and going to late at night, uh, a lot of highlights, great plenary sessions, great highlight um, sessions like, you know, the great debate and um, community hubs were actually really, really popular at this. If you're a community hub person, you, shouldn't, you should be a community hub person because uh, I think they had great people there, uh, like-minded people gathering and um, really getting a new edge to their education. So in this podcast, I'm going to review with you some of the good stuff that I have not covered during the week. And to do that, I'm going to actually share with you some of the data by um, by using some new technology. So, let's see how, how this works. Patient characteristics may inform your treatment approach with specific patient populations. A biomarker-driven study with precisely defined inclusion criteria looked at arensium, abatacept, and a TNF inhibitor. Don't treat in the dark visit arensiadata.com. All right. So there we are. Um, this is the um, opening screen. I'm going to advance my slides. Let's see how this works. There we go. So my first abstract is this. Uh, I'm looking the wrong way to <laughs> this. Anyway, those of you who are listening to the podcast, you got to look at the, the YouTube feed on this. It looks kind of odd to say the least, but You know, anyway, my first one is uh, we're going to go into some sections here. So I didn't know how to organize this. So I'm going to give it to you by topics. My first topic is psoriatic arthritis. There are a lot of themes of new things that happen in psoriatic arthritis. Um, This one sort of touches on the theme of pain. Pain is being discussed quite a bit at the meetings. You know, sometimes our best therapies don't really cover patient pain. And maybe there's another aspect of therapy that we should be focusing on. Um, this is Abstract 1777 by um, Alexis Ogdi, And uh, in this one, she actually showed that a high percentage of patients with psoriatic arthritis and, and with ankylosing spondylitis, I think it was like 21 and 27% respectively, um, have pain so much so that they're taking narcotics. So again, why would you want your patients with these diseases taking narcotics? You wouldn't. Obviously, you're not doing well enough in managing these diseases if they are, in fact, taking narcotics. And actually, Dr. Agbi Beatty, uh, also from University of Pennsylvania, um, presented other research showing the same thing, that when she looked at who manages spondylitis patients at her center in Pennsylvania, and you compare primary care doctors managing spondylitis to rheumatologists, guess what? Primary care doctors had a fairly high amount of of narcotic use. And the rheumatologist did not. The rheumatologists were using largely DMARDs and biologics, as you would well imagine. So here, I think, is an instructive point that pain might need to be managed differently in spondylitis. And, you know, being more aggressive, probably using other modalities other than uh, narcotics, that would make a great deal of sense. Let's go on to our next one. This next one is um, a, a slide that I'm focusing on the TIC 2 inhibitors. These are a new um, uh, class of, 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 not class, it's a new addition to the Janus kinase inhibitors that have been out there. So we have a number of JAK inhibitors and part of the JAK family is uh, tic 2 And last year we saw data about the cravositinib being introduced. It's been studied in psoriasis where it's shown to work well. It's being studied now in psoriatic arthritis and Phil Mees presented the data, uh, abstract 1820, a phase two trial of the in patients with psoriatic arthritis. And yes, it did well against placebo as expected with no new um, concerns about safety. The other uh, new and interesting thing from this meeting was the, a new tick 2 inhibitor called brepositinib. Um, this is a tick 2 jak one inhibitor also being studied in psoriatic arthritis. This is a dose ranging uh, phase two trial where they tested uh, uh, either, what was it? The uh, 10 milligrams, 30 milligrams and 60 milligrams versus placebo. And yes, there was a dose related response when you use this Uh, And so you'll probably see be seeing more of this in the future. Um, our next report is tildrikizumab. Tildrakizumab is a uh, IL-23 inhibitor. There are several IL-23 inhibitors that are out there in the marketplace right now. We um, uh, that these are clearly looking very good in psoriasis, uh, and now they're being extended into psoriatic arthritis patients. Uh, and this uh, particular study was uh, presented by Dr. Kavanaugh. This is abstract 1819. Um, and no big surprises here. An IL-23 inhibitor working well in patients with uh, psoriatic arthritis. And so we have uh, Tremphia, which is Guselkumab. That's an IL-23 inhibitor. Uh, Dr. Deodar has presented that in the past. We have the other one that's in the marketplace right now for um, made by AVI, the uh, Risankizumab. Uh, that's also approved in psoriasis and being studied in psoriatic arthritis. And now here's another addition to the mix. So th- the question is, you know, um, is this gonna treat all patients? Uh, I think that another nice um, bit of research came from uh, research in the spondyloarthropathies. This is uh, an L.E. Zide presented uh, results of, a, of an analysis looking at the incidence of peripheral spondyloarthritis it's a subset, you know, and you can probably remind yourself of a patient who is in the spa class, but they don't have axial spa. They are more than and different than a non-radiographic axial. Those have to have inflammatory back pain, as you remember. And they're certainly not psoriatic arthritis. So they're not in that group at all. In this abstract 1787, they go on to describe amongst 4,000 patients, about 5% of the population that sort of meet this particular uh, subset of peripheral arthritis. And are they different? Well, it seems like when you study them closely, they might have a higher burden of disease than does ax- axial spa or psoriatic arthritis. Um, they certainly get less aggressive treatment. There's less overall DMARD use in this population. And that's a little concerning. I think in the future, you'll be seeing more of these reports of axial spondylarthritis—not uh, sorry, peripheral arthritis. The the other interesting uh, aspect here is um, uh, is this idea of how to detect sacroiliitis. Now we have you know relied on X-rays, and when you're a rheumatologist, you know how to read a a plain X-ray and detect sacroiliitis involving the lower one third of the SI joints. But you know the rest of the world doesn't really have you uh, an expert, nor do they have a musculoskeletal bone radiologist. So the question is, is there a better way? Uh, Dennis Podubny um, in Germany actually did a nice report about looking at artificial intelligence to see if it could detect radiographic sacroiliitis. So there's a number of abstracts at this meeting looking at artificial intelligence and machine learning to get to better outcomes. And this is one of them. And sure enough, you know, they went uh, and they compared machine learning approach. They basically downloaded Lots and lots of x-rays, the digital x-rays, uh, and, and through machine learning, try to develop algorithms to make you know, a, a diagnosis of sacralitis. And yes, they do. And they, yes, their success rate matches the ex- experts. So uh, again, you, the, why is this important? Um, one, machine learning and AI is coming. Two, um, there may well be a day that you order the x-ray, it gets uploaded, and a computer reads these and gives you a very detailed readout. That may be much more, much uh, a much better readout than what you're currently getting. I don't know about you, but I work in an academic center where we used to have a bone radiologist, and then he moved on, and then a bunch of other docs stepped in and were reading the X-rays of my arthritis patients. So I'd order an X-ray from my arthritis clinic, and the report would come back: arthritis pr- present whether it was, uh, you know, a a knee or a a pelvis, arthritis present. Really? Uh, It's coming from the arthritis clinic. I mean, I want to know exactly what you see and what the details are. And I think you can, we might be getting that when we start looking at computer generated readings of our films for sacroiliitis. There are other reports on AI. One that I really liked it's on the bottom here. This is abstract um, 1922 uses AI and machine learning to make an earlier diagnosis of um, AXSPA. You're certainly aware of the data that says there's a significant delay in the diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis and axial spondyloarthritis, that it's on average seven to nine years, and that most rheumatologists are surprised when they find out that they're not the ones making the diagnosis or doing the early management. These Again, they're usually made incidentally, and they come to you way too late. If you have a specific effort to enhance the referral and the early referral of those patients to you, congratulations, but most of us do not. This particular exercise uses the EMR and language that was learned in EMR visits with rheumatologists to be applied to the general population to find patients who are at the earliest stages of their disease and then to prompt the later Referral or as soon as possible referral to the rheumatologist. So they've worked out the algorithm. Now they're going to test it and put it to work. I assume that in um, abstracts and years to come, we'll be seeing more on this. Um, there was an, uh, a great session um, on Saturday uh, on uh, axial involvement in AXPA versus PSA. And uh, you might look at that. There were good presentations by Atul Deodar and Nigel Haroon from Canada. But not, uh, I, I want to point out um, Atul's um, comments in that uh, we're, uh, we're kind of excited about the IL-23 thing and in, in psoriatic arthritis and whatnot, in spondylarthritis in general. But you know what? IL-23 has not shown up uh, as an effective agent in managing ankylosing spondylitis in patients with axial disease. He presented the data that showed that patients treated with Used to use to, used to kinemab and rising kizimab, IL23 inhibitors did not work in AXPA. spa, but this is curious because as you know there's there are trials with filgotinib and upadacitinib in axial arthritis patients and they're, um, and they seem like they work and there's also the 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 patients who have axial psoriatic arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, where again these seem to work. So there's a little confusion here about IL-23 and these other drugs. I I think we need more time, more research to work out their potential utility. So our next topic is going to be the auto-inflammatory diseases. We had a lot of coverage of that during the meeting. Um, We've talked about emipalumab in the past. I'm going to present it again because I think it's so impactful. This was Uh, presented by Fabrizio Di Benedetti. It's abstract L20, late-breaking abstract number 20. Emipalumab is a gamma interferon monoclonal antibody that has been developed and approved for use in the United States for HLH patients. But what they're doing is they're testing it and its utility in macrophage activation syndrome, MAS. So in this particular cohort, 14 patients who had MAS as a complication of systemic JIA these patients were all refractory. They failed steroids. They failed cyclosporin. They failed anakinra. And they were sick, really sick. And in this trial, they pretty much all worked depending on the measure, clinical outcome measures. And the primary endpoint measure was 13 out of 14 patients got better. They got better in pretty quickly, a few days to a few weeks. Um, it's really impressive data. Uh, and again, these patients re- clearly had MAS. You know, the mean ferritin level was over 25,000. You know, they had cytopenias, high IL-2 levels, high LDH levels, uh, high of um, soluble IL-2 uh, uh, receptor levels. So the idea here is they were you know, um, dramatic responders. They were able to go off of steroids um, and they were, some of them were treated for just uh, two weeks. A few of them needed extended therapy, but emipalumab, MAS and Stills disease, as you know, the most common cause of MAS are patients with systemic disease. That happens in kids, that happens in adults. Traditional treatment is steroids and cyclosporin, etoposide. I would argue, you know, if someone's really sick and in the hospital and in the ICU, this is what I'd be writing for. And I'm sure you could actually get it approved for. It is approved for HLH. Um, the next exciting thing was, again, the, the Vexus presentation. It was a plenary session presentation, abstract number 1426, by um, uh, a fellow from the NIH, Marcella Ferrata, she did a fabulous presentation. In this presentation, they they basically further studied the VEXA syndrome, as you know, an auto-inflammatory syndrome with fever, but a lot of skin things, a lot of bone marrow and hematologic things. And in fact, a lot of these patients look like they have relapsing polychondritis or sweet syndrome or some form of vasculitis. Um, when they analyzed their large cohort, they, they came up with a formula for who's at risk because these patients can be Sick. Some of them can be lethally sick. I mean, the the I think the number was five-year survival was only fifty percent. And in their analysis, they came up with the algorithm to say that if you were someone who had a specific genotype, uh, and that was a valine for um, uh, a valine substitution in the specific um, X-linked gene mutation that is associated with this disease that you had a really high chance of mortality. I mean, dangerously high. Um, and that maybe you would be more aggressive in identifying those patients and treating those patients. The other thing that was also predictive was the need for recurrent transfusion. So since we don't have gene testing and, and you don't wanna wait as far as recurrent transfusion, um, Dr. Ferrada suggested patients who might be at higher risk for this particular outcome would be those who have very high MCV levels, greater than 100 and platelet counts less than 200 a nice clinical tool if you think that and if you think you don't you're not ever going to see the vexus syndrome they did another analysis and, and Dr. Ferrada presented this data that said that in a large cohort of relapsing polychondritis patients uh, 8 or 9% of them had the gene for the vexus syndrome so you might want to rethink vexus when you're seeing things like sweet syndrome and relapsing polychondritis there was this uh, nice report from Mitrovic and colleagues, Abstract 1100 uh, on pulmonary arterial hypertension in complicating adult stills disease. They had 13 patients. Um, these were all right heart, calf uh, confirmed cases of, uh, of PAH. These were sick patients. They all failed steroids. Um, most 69% had failed IL-1 inhibitors. They had a high mortality, 38% mortality. Um, so again, it's probably important to recognize this population. I think this is a minor population among stills disease. Um, and I would say that, that this is a, this experience of 13 patients was seen in two very large centers in France. Um, and so it's going to be a small number, maybe, you know, one to 5% of your stills patients are going to get this. But I think the, the unifying features of this were they were all female they were all failing steroids and they all failed and were treated with IL-1 inhibitors. So that might be your ticket to think about this particular subset of very difficult Still's disease. The um, canakinumab was studied in the Reliance Registry. There's an open label registry, 91 patients with CAPS, the cryop- cryopyrin associated periodic syndrome. This is a 30 month follow-up, all showing really good data. No particular new complications or surprises in this. Uh, again, encouraging for, for those of you who manage patients with this particular autoinflammatory inflammatory syndrome, CAPS. Let's move on to this lupus. Um, this particular abstract, 865, uh, showed that achieving low disease activity, the LL-DAS, the lupus low disease activity state, achieving that confers a significant protection against future mortality. Uh, in, in this study, um, I have some of the notes on the bottom there, a one-point increase in sleet eye increased the risk of mortality as much as 15%. That's kind of scary uh, when you look at this. Overall, about half their patients um, were in LL-DAS for more than 50% of the time. And the ones who were in this category, um, you know, they didn't do so well. Um, being in remission was less likely in those who died. It was only achieved in 21% of the patients. Over And then again, achieving an LL-DAS um, of more than 50% reduction um, for more than 50% of time did um, reduce mortality by 50% or more. Uh, and the clinical remission on treatment uh, was also associated with a clinical re- a reduction in mortality risk by 36%. So, again, treating the target in lupus seems to make sense. Uh, and I think everyone would agree with that, but I don't know that we generally um, do that in real clinical practice. This particular study, um, 454, uh, from Eric Yen and uh, collaborators in Los Angeles, looked at uh, mortality in the United States. And the good news is that in the United States, mortality for lupus has dropped significantly over a 20 year period. From 1999 to 2019, mortality dropped by 26%. And that's really good, good news. Congratulations. All your research and hard work is paying off. The problem is, that it doesn't always pay off in um, ethnic groups. So specifically Blacks, Hispanics, and Asians really are not doing very well compared to Whites. Um, And that if you live in in urban areas, you you do much better than if you don't. So there is this inequality. There is this health disparity. And in fact, there was a lot of health disparity information that was gone over at this meeting. If you're interested in that, I'd encourage you to do the search, find the data. It's really quite striking. I put up this data about breakthrough infections of COVID-19 in individuals who were vaccinated, fully vaccinated individuals with rheumatic disease. Uh, and this was a presentation by Jazz Singh from UAB Abstract L16, Late Breaker 16. Um, and here he showed, you know, they, they did an analysis. Their analysis was based on the largest. EMR database of COVID patients, a national database of, of EMR data identifying large, large numbers of COVIDs and linking it to other diseases and drugs, et cetera. And again, in this study, they had over 500,000 patients who um, had been, who have rheumatic disease, who had been fully vaccinated, two, you know, two Moderners, two Pfizers, one Janssen, um, and had a breakthrough infection. And when they looked at the the risk factors for breakthrough infection, they saw it was more likely in RA and in gout and in vasculitis It was highest in patients who had polymyalgia, I'm sorry, polymyositis or dermatomyositis. Not on the list was the lupus or scleroderma. And when you looked at the drugs that had a higher risk, it was patients on biologics and patients on steroids but not necessarily being on traditional uh, um, disease modifying drugs or gout drugs or anything like this. I bring this up because I, I found all this interesting. I, for instance, I found it interesting that gout had a higher risk of breakthrough infection, but then again, gout patients have a tremendous amount of comorbidity, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, etc. cetera. That's probably why they're on the list, not because of their drugs, or because they're uncontrolled, I think the risk factors for breakthrough infections are still risk factors for getting infection, which is age, comorbidities, having disease activity and inflammation are drivers. And that's shown through in this late-breaking abstract from uh, Jazz Singh. Um, another abstract around the COVID story was um, the association between outcomes of COVID uh, and ethnicity amongst our patients, specifically amongst lupus patients. Abstract 1933 by Ugarte Gill um, was really quite interesting. This is data from the Global Rheumatology Alliance, where they looked at the um, who was going to have more severe outcomes. And in this study, it was uh, African-Americans and Hispanics that did not have um, good outcomes compared to whites and other groups. Another issue of racial disparity, uh, a really hot topic at this year's ACR meeting. Um, My next uh, category is rheumatoid arthritis. And I mean, we talked a lot during this meeting about the oral surveillance, the Pfizer 1133 study. Here are the abstracts um, looking at MACE, looking at uh, cancer outcomes, looking at VTE, uh, venous thromboembolic events. I think it's important to Take note of these very important studies and discuss them with your colleagues. I want to just bring them up to make one point. The number needed to harm. The number needed to harm from MACE is about 500. The number, and by harm, I mean get an extra cardiovascular event compared to being treated with a a TNF inhibitor. So 500 cases. The number needed to harm to get cancer is 250 to um, to, uh, 300, 350. So again, these the bottom line is while there's a lot of talk and a lot of concern about these events, they are thankfully uncommon events, and that's probably uh, something you should discuss with your patients. The other thing that's talked a lot about the meeting is the vital study presented by Karen uh from Harvard uh, and the Brigham. You know, it was a big study. Uh, this is a result of the vital study. It's a cohort. Um, originally designed to look at cardiovascular outcomes in cancer. And I want to start by saying that was already published. This is, we're talking about really large numbers here. I, mean, I, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe. And again, it's looking at the impact of vitamins and supplements, specifically vitamin D and omega-3 uh, fatty acids or N3 fatty acid supplements on cardiovascular and cancer outcomes. The New England Journal article says didn't work. Didn't work at all. Sorry. In this particular study of 25,000 patients with rheumatic disease in that cohort, and looking at the impact, I'm sorry, without rheumatic disease. So 20, it, took 20, it was 25,000, did taking vitamin D or the, the fish oil prevent getting an autoimmune disease? And uh, the answer was yes. But if you look at the data, uh, I'm going to give a contrary view. Everyone's excited. It looks like taking vitamin D and N3 fatty acids is a great way to prevent disease, but the number needed to treat, the number needed to benefit here is still hundreds. I mean, really large. A good NNT is like three, four, five, six. So the idea is you got to treat a lot of people with vitamin D and N3 fatty acids to protect them against this. Am I against it? No, I think it's a good health measure but my expectations here are low. And that's why I presented to give you a slightly contrary view. If you don't like vitamins, you'll like what I just said. If you're a vitamin nut, you're going to call me and write me letters and, and threaten my cat. And you know, let's talk about it. Please, please keep my cat out of this discussion. Another I thought interesting abstract comes from Coburn and colleagues. Again, they've covered this before. This is their meta-analyses of Uh, of steroid use in very large databases, abstract 1915. There was a lot at this meeting about the hazards of steroids, especially low dose, especially on cardiovascular outcomes. And again, these researchers showed that in a dose-dependent fashion, steroids are dangerous. Again, the best drug we have, the worst drug we have, that's a quote from Peter Merkel. Um, But the take-home data is that, that even at doses of five milligrams or less, there's an increased cardiovascular risk for major adverse outcomes. It was mainly seen in the elderly, not so much in the commercial insurance which has younger individuals. Uh, in the, so the elderly meaning the Medicare population. So this was, a, I bring this up because I think steroids were a big theme at this particular meeting. Uh, another cardiovascular outcome, the impact of adhering to your antimalarial use. This is Hogue and colleagues, abstract 1909, They looked at a few thousand, I want to say 20,000 people um, with RA and and lupus and looked at compliance with the antimalarial. We assume that's all hydroxychloroquine. And the bottom line, if you compare those who are compliant to those who are not compliant, the compliant patients had a 50 to 60% lower risk of cardiovascular events. I mean, this is a major problem with us. How do you know your patients are taking their antimalarials? Speaks for again measuring levels. If we could, in fact, do that, we're going to get around to doing that and sometime soon. I'm going to end with a discussion of, of TNF inhibitors. Um, in this particular uh, first abstract, I have here. Oh, I don't have it on there. There were two one that uh, from uh, Robert Chow, uh, one of the room now faculty, he had a nice report um, from the Corona database looking at. Um, uh, psoriatic arthritis patients, and what was effective in treating enthesitis, and you know what, equally effective: conventional DMARDs, IL-17 inhibitors, and TNF inhibitors. They're all equally good in enthesitis. I bring it up because I don't think there's a drug that's tremendously great at enthesitis. I think they're all good, and I'm talking now about IL-23 and Jak inhibitors as well. But sticking with the drugs that you've used, you're doing the right thing. If enthesitis and Achilles tendonitis is your biggest problem a B27 person, you know, use the algorithm you've always used. There's no new data I think that I can find that says one is better than the other. The last one was um, uh, the Regis Sponsor AS database, looking at the impact of comorbidities on outcomes. And this is uh, another theme in the meeting, this abstract 1309, where... Uh, they showed that the presence of comorbidities lessens efficacy. And in this particular study, we're looking at TNF inhibitors and the efficacy of TNF inhibitors, and it was much less when you had more than one comorbidity in play. This has been seen in spondylitis and rheumatoid arthritis in lupus in multiple disorders. And you know why? this is important because you're more you're, you're the one who's going to know this, but are you the one who's going to manage the comorbidity? And the problem is, Most rheumatologists believe that the comorbidity is going to be managed by the primary care doctor, but yet it usually is not. So my suggestion is you have to take the bull by the horns and start the comorbidity management and refer for follow through to the primary care or that you yourself actually manage these cases. Anyway, that's it for room now. I hope you enjoyed this um, particular podcast if you can want to find more on our ACR coverage, at the top of our main page is an ACR logo, an ACR21 logo. Click on that, and I'll take you to our Room Now coverage. We'll be rolling that out quite a bit in the next few weeks to follow. Hope you enjoyed. Bye-bye. With such a broad treatment landscape for rheumatoid arthritis, it can be difficult to find an appropriate treatment option for your patients. Given that some detrimental effects of RA may be permanent, What can you do to get ahead of the situation? An exploratory study has been conducted investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population. Patients who tested positive for both anti-CCP and rheumatoid factor, which together are associated with higher disease activity. This study may suggest a different way to look at RA patients. See the results for yourself at rabiomarkers.com.